Open to Luke chapter 16. We're going to get there in a minute. But uh, I want to recap some stuff from last week. So if you weren't here last week or you haven't seen the sermon from last week, some of this will seem like we're already long past some particulars that you might be asking, but you can go back and listen to that. And then maybe you have to listen to this one again after it to make sense of it all together. But nevertheless, we saw some glorious things last week. We saw that the law and the prophets found their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, that all of the scriptures were pointing forward to him, whether law, prophecy, type, shadow, whatever you go back into those Old Testament scriptures and you find, you need to see it as it's pointing forward to its final fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And we discussed it briefly, since all of those are pointing forward to Jesus and find their fulfillment in Him, we discussed how He not only is the greater lawgiver, foreshadowed first by Moses, but also He is Himself the greater law. We looked briefly at the fact that He gives Himself as the example. We read that verse, and we'll go back to it in John chapter 13. He gives himself as the example of what constitutes complete godliness and goodness and righteousness and virtue. He is the standard or the reference point for how we ought to live. We discussed briefly how under the old covenant, the Israelites, if they were to ask the question, how ought I to live in righteousness? They were to look to the law. It was pretty prescriptive for them. This is what you do. This is what pleases God. As we come into the new covenant, brethren, we're to look to a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and all of that was sort of necessary groundwork for what I want to deal with today. Originally, I actually intended just to preach this message, uh, but I realized in doing so, I probably would have sort of just assumed a number of theological points that I thought were important to prove. And so that's why we did the first message first. So we laid that out ultimately because if I'm going to preach to you, which is what we're going to deal with this week, that Jesus Christ brings in a new law for his people under the new covenant, it assumes all of that fulfillment principle from the Old Testament. That all of that was looking forward to him. Everything in the law as well was looking forward to him. And you see how all of the Old, Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And then we can ask the question, if that's the case, and since that's the case, then what relationship do we have if we've come out of an old covenant into a new one? We've come out of the old covenant law into a new one. Then we can look back and say, if, if all the fulfillment is over here in Jesus, then what relationship now do we have with the old covenant and its law? And furthermore, what covenant law are we under? And so we're going to deal with those issues today. So the reason I had you go to Luke 16 is because to start, I want to sort of lay out an overarching paradigm for you for how I think we need to understand this concept of the Old Covenant passing away with its covenant law as a rule of duty for the people and the entrance of the New Covenant. So I want to deal with this. This is just an overview. This text is not meant 
to prove that particular point. We're going to go to another passage to look at it. But I want you to see it in broad scope here in Luke chapter 16. And this is a familiar passage to the one we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 5. So let's read this, Luke 16, verses 16 and 17. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So, so Jesus tells us, right, the law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So the question is, what does this mean, right? Well, certainly it does not mean that the Old Testament scriptures came to an end and are now irrelevant for God's people. As this new kingdom of God is coming in, that the Old Testament scriptures now are meaningless to you, you can get rid of them. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. We dealt with that in part last week, that God's revelation will not pass away. Indeed, it cannot pass away. It does not become irrelevant for God's people. But not only that, but Jesus' next words would quite clearly contradict that, right? He says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So the Old Testament scriptures do not become devoid of value or, or, or necessity for God's people now that this new kingdom of God is coming in. But what Jesus does seem to be doing is he's contrasting realities, if you will. He's dealing with the fact that one reality which was present previously has passed away. And in light of it, a new reality is present. One that is entering in the kingdom of God. And he's making contrast. He's making a contrast between the time of the law and the prophets which I think could be properly understood as the Old Covenant, and the time of the kingdom of God. Again, I think properly best understood as the New Covenant. So he's saying that there's this thing that was until John, and then there's this thing, the kingdom of God that comes in. And John shows up, John the Baptist shows up, and he's proclaiming not only the coming of the Messiah, who would bring in salvation for his people, he would die for his people. There's those promises all throughout the Old Testament. But brethren, part and parcel to the, to the Savior coming to his people is not just a person who comes to die for sin, but it's a person who comes and he brings the kingdom. It's a, it's a new reality for God's people. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It obviously certainly is that, but it's not just that. So he brings in the kingdom of God. He brings, you look at Jeremiah, Ezekiel, there's this discussion about a new covenant that's coming. So as John shows up on the scene and he begins to proclaim this good news of the kingdom of God, it's, it's forgiveness of sins, but it's the kingdom. It's God establishing his kingdom. It's a new covenant he's making with his people. And so we read the law and the prophets lead us up to the point where Jesus says the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And so brethren, we find ourselves in a different age. We find ourselves in an age distinct from the previous one. It's not totally separate from the previous one, but it is a different one. It is one that the previous one pointed forward to. This one is the one where the kingdom of God is being established. So Jesus tells us the good news is proclaimed, and there is an urgent, forceful entry happening. That, that section there, you read it, it says everyone forces his way into it. 
I think that that can be a little bit better understood as this. Everyone is forcefully urged into it. You may have even a note in your Bible that, that says or and then puts that particular rendering of the verses. The point is this, with the entrance of the kingdom of God, John the Baptist showing up on the scene, beginning to proclaim this new covenant, this new kingdom of God for, for God's people, there is an urgent, forceful calling of people to enter into that. There is an urgent call to come out of the old and enter into the new. So I think the text is indicating that the old covenant, the the period during which men and women were related to God under its terms came to an end with John, when the new reality enters in upon them, which is far superior. Brethren, the one which we ought to enter into. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to front load this right out of the gate with a number of claims and I'm going to make these claims, and then I'm going to go through the Scripture, and I'm going to prove to you these claims. But what I want to prove to you is this. This is what I want you to get, brethren. I want you to see that you are not under the Old Covenant, and you are not, therefore, under its law. You're not under the Mosaic Law. That's not your covenant rule of duty. We are under a new covenant, and as part of that, Jesus Christ enters in as a greater lawgiver foreshadowed by Moses and gives us a new covenant law, a new rule of duty. We have a different one. It is not one, and we're going to look at this, it's not one that's in conflict with the old. In fact, we'll see that it actually fulfills the old. But nevertheless, it is distinct. I want you to see that Christ's law exemplified in himself is a singular commandment which is sufficient to cover all things required for God's people. So let's deal with this first particular point. And this is the important one that I want you to grasp. I want to deal with the reality of the old covenant passing away along with its law. Now this is important. Because we can ask a million other questions, but we have first got to get this right. And there's a lot of questions that will come after this, right? We've got to ask, well, what does that mean for me then? If the old covenant and its law has passed away, how should I then live? We're going to deal with all of that. But, but of primary importance, I want you to see, brethren, that covenant has passed away. And that law has passed away. It is not your covenant law. I want you to get that. And then we're going to deal with the other, the other pieces. So let's go to Galatians chapter 3. There's a number of places where I intended to take you to prove this point. There's a lot of them. Uh, but I just I am not going to have enough time to deal with a bunch of them. I'm really only going to have time to deal with one. So we're going to just deal with this particular point in Galatians. And so here's the deal. The Galatians, Paul's letter, he's writing to this church because they have taken their eyes off of Christ. The Galatians have began to look to Mosaic law keeping as a means by which they are to be sanctified or perfected. Look, you can, 
Go back and look at it. I'm not going to deal with it right now. But in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul states his main point of the book, which is that they recognize they began by faith, and yet they think they're being perfected or sanctified by works of the law, not by faith anymore. So Paul's dealing with that issue. But then let's just begin here. Starting at chapter 3, verse 15. Paul is going to begin to lay out an argument for us. And this argument is going to claim that the Mosaic law and its covenant have passed away. He's going to show us that the promise, which was initially given to Abraham, which was that the nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring, namely Christ, with the coming of the Holy Spirit. You can see that back in chapter 3, verse 14. And what he's going to deal with is that the law came in and it had a function. But that function comes to an end with Christ's coming. And that law passes away with its covenant at Christ's coming and the giving of the Spirit. So that's going to be his argument. Let's look at this. Read with me chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. To give a human example, brothers... So he's going to begin his argument here, and he wants to start with an example that you can understand. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul gives us a human example to help us kind of grasp where he's going. And, and we recognize this, right? If you make a covenant or you make a commitment or, or you write a contract with someone and those, those documents are signed, you don't go back and just change it up. Once it's been ratified, once it's been signed, it's not changed. And he says it's the same thing with the promises that were given to Abraham, which would ultimately be given to Christ. And so he's he's... He's talking about how this is the one who would actually bring the blessing of the Spirit. Now he's going to tell us what all this means. So look with me at verse 17. This is always good when Paul does this. I was talking with Manny about it uh, yesterday. He says a bunch of stuff and then he says, this is what I mean. So here's where we're at, right? Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So he says, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So let me ask you a couple of questions. The first one is this. What covenant is he talking about that is not changed? What's the one that's in reference there? That's not annulled. That's not changed. It's, it's the covenant with Abraham, right? It's the promise to Abraham. He says this covenant was given to Abraham. Promises were given to Abraham. So that's the one he's talking about that doesn't change. Now he says that the law, which came 430 years after, which law is that? It's the Mosaic law, the law given at Sinai. That's exactly what it is. 
And so here's the, here's the point, brethren. He has in view the entirety of the law. All of it was given then. All of it was given at Sinai. And all the way through here, Paul is taking the law as a whole. He is not breaking it up. And if you get that wrong at the start, that's a big problem of interpretation. So he says, the law came in 430 years after Abraham. And Paul says, look, that law came in, but it did not make the promise void. In fact, those things were never intended to be received by law keeping. So, of course, we have to ask the question then, well, why the law? What's the point? You gave the promises to Abraham and you were going to bring them about. Why did you bring the law if it doesn't have anything to do with how we gain the promises? And he answers that question for us in the next verse. He does it in two ways. Let's read this verse, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So Paul says two things, two very important things. The first one is he gives us the function that the law served, the purpose for it. He's answering the question, why the law? And he tells us why the law. And then the second thing is this, and this is the important one, brethren, do not miss this. He gives a time limit on the law. So he, he, he says this first, that the law was added because of transgressions. Now look, this can be interpreted a number of different ways. And ultimately, however you interpret the law being given because of transgressions is not ultimately important to the point being made, which I'll get to. But nevertheless, given what he says later about the law being a guardian or a schoolmaster, I think what Paul's getting at is this. The law came in to function as a guardian for the people. It was given and it was supposed to function as sort of guardrails for the people so that the promised one would actually come from them. But obviously the problem was this. It didn't help them. It only agitated them. The law came in and it, it didn't help them to do that. It stirred up their sin and only proved more and more that they needed the promised offspring to come. But nevertheless, however you want to interpret the law coming in and, uh, and, and what it means that it was added because of transgression, the point is this, brethren, the law being a guardian, the law or the guardian itself, he says, is only in place until the offspring should come. It's an important timestamp on this verse, brethren. Very, very important. And he deals with this a little bit later on. Look with me down a little bit, verses 23 through 26. And I, I want to just make a brief note here in regards to these verses. Uh, because typically whenever I prepare, I'll, I'll read everything I'm going to preach from from a number of different translations, because I know some of you use different translations. And what I came to realize is there's an interesting interpretive translation thing going on in some of these, some of these versions. So what you will know is when we read through this, some of your Bibles will probably say that the law was given, down here in these sections, 23 through uh, 26, that the law was given to lead us to Christ, rather than the law was given until Christ came. Now, the interesting thing is this. When you look at it, that is a full-on interpretive translation. Because the problem is this. 
Every single version in verse 19 reads, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. You get down a little later and they change it. It's the same structure, but they change it to, to lead us to Christ. This is a problem. This is a problem hermeneutically. When you begin to change translation, especially when it's saying the same thing. So Paul is saying the same thing down a little bit as he was saying back up in verse 19, that the law or the guardian is in place until the offspring should come, who is Christ. The structure's the same. To change it is super unnatural and totally skews interpretation. So I'm going to read these to you, verse 23 through verse 26. Now, before faith came, now what I also want you to see here is he's using the word faith and Christ interchangeably, okay? He's dealing with the fact that this law is in place until this thing, and the thing is Christ coming. And he's dealing with, with Christ and faith, who, right? Christ is the object of our faith. So he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So you see the point there as well. For faith came, held captive, law was our guardian until Christ came. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for you are all sons. And look, this transitions us, transitions us into the next point, and he deals with it again. Following this, he deals with another argument to help us understand this point. He gives us another analogy to help us understand that the guardian, the law, passes away when Christ came. And instead of being like children, who essentially function like slaves under that strict set, uh, that strict guardian. We are free sons. So let's look at this, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read this to you. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So he's going to deal with two things here. You have an heir, right? This is a child who's going to receive a massive inheritance. And he's saying, that child is not any different than a slave. He's going to tell us why. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, you have this idea, the heir to a great fortune. But when he's a child, he's really no different than a slave. Oh, he, he may well, in time, receive a great inheritance at some later point. But as a child, he is under strict guidelines and rules. 
That grand inheritance really is of no value to him until he grows older and actually receives it. He's under a guardian until the time appointed when the Father will give him the inheritance. And Paul equates this with himself and by proxy the Jews and the coming of Christ. He says that when we were children, we were enslaved to those basic elementary principles. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. So you see the connection. I hope you at least see it. He's, ma he's making this connection between the time in which Christ came and the time before that of in which the Father gives the child his inheritance. The child is under a guardian until the date appointed by the Father, right? Until then, he's under the guardian. And here's his point. They were under the guardian until the time appointed by God the Father, where he would send the Son to redeem them. Again, these timestamps are important. Now they're brought in, brethren. They're brought in as full-grown sons under freedom. No longer children functioning essentially like slaves. Listen, as my, as my son grows older, there is a reality of freedom that is given to him. I don't, I don't, any, I would hope when my son is 25 and 30 years old, I'm not calling him saying, did you brush your teeth? Make sure you tie your shoes. There's a reality of freedom now that he has as he grows up as a son. He's, he's not under this, these strict guidelines now because he has no ability to understand. He's entered into freedom as sons. And that's what we are. But finally, as if that wasn't enough, he comes back to it again. A little bit later in chapter 4. Now, I'm not going to read this whole section, but I am going to just walk us through it briefly. So chapter 4, verses 21 down through verses 31, he's going to deal with, with this concept. Abraham had two sons, one born of a slave woman and the other by a free woman. You see that in verse 22. And he's going to deal with these two women, Sarah and the other is Hagar. And Abraham had Ishmael by Hagar, and he had Isaac by Sarah. And in verse 24, he tells us that these two women may be interpreted allegorically as two covenants. I'm not saying that. That's right there in the text. So these are two different covenants. And he's going to explain what each of these two covenants is doing and how we are part of one of them. So you have the woman, he says, uh, he calls Mount Sinai. Now this is ob quite obviously, brethren, his reference to the old covenant, right? He's dealing with these two women, and he's saying they're two covenants. Brethren, wh <laughs> which covenant is related to Mount Sinai? That's right. This is quite clear, right? We're dealing with two covenants. So Mount Sinai, he says, this is the old covenant. And she is producing nothing but children in slavery. The other woman is not brought in until verse 26. And she represents the heavenly new Jerusalem. And she is free. And she is producing children in freedom. And again, keeping with Paul's theme here. He's dealing with these two women. He's saying they're two covenants. What covenant do you think the new Jerusalem is that has freedom? The new covenant, okay? I know he doesn't tell us which covenants they are, but we can get it. 
So one of them, the Old Covenant, Mount Sinai, Mosaic Law, all these things. Now we have this New Jerusalem, New Covenant. And the new, it, it, this is the New Jerusalem that was promised all throughout the Old Testament. New Covenant promised all throughout the Old Testament. And then he tells us in verse 28 that we are children of promise. In other words, you've been brought in under a new covenant of promise. You are not children under the old covenant of the slave woman, as he'll say in verse 31. You are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So again, brethren, Paul is quite clear. This covenant has passed away. Passed away along with its law because the guardian was in place until Christ came. Until the offspring came. Brethren, you're not under that covenant. You're not under that law as your covenant stipulations or rules. But I want to I ask you something as before we move on past this point. Brother, I want to ask you if you are willing to do what Paul calls you to do in verse 30. Just before this, up, up in verse 29, Paul goes back to the situation of Isaac and Ishmael in the Old Testament. He says that the one born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the one born according to the spirit, Isaac. He tells them that it is the same way now for you. And then he tells them what they ought to do. He quotes from the Old Testament about what Abraham was to do then, and he likens it to what they are to do now. Look at what he says in verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Brethren, let me ask you this. Paul is dealing with these two women, and he's dealing with them as covenants. We, I just asked you this. What, does, what covenant does the slave woman represent? The old covenant, brethren. So I ask you this. Are you going to cast her out? Are you going to cast it out? Paul says, cast out that slave woman. Or are you, are you going to come in? Are you going to live under a new one with freedom? Are you going to continue to put yourself under that one? When Paul says, cast out that slave woman. Brethren, I would call you, as Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are not children of the slave, brethren. You are children of the free woman. So then we have to ask this question, right? How then should we live? If we are not under the old covenant, if we are not under the Mosaic law, do we have no law? Do we live lawlessly? Do we do whatever we want to do in our own eyes? Brethren, of course, the answer is no. Paul addresses this a bit later. Paul often foresees people's questions. He deals with it a bit later, chapter 5, verse 13. <clears throat> he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So quite obviously, Paul is not advocating for lawless living. But nevertheless, the question still stands, does it not? What am I supposed to do, though? How am I supposed to live? Well, he answers that for us as well. 
Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Brethren, as a Christian, I want you to understand what your covenant law is, if it's not the old covenant law. So let's, let's deal with this. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians 9, we're going to read verses 19 through 21. But up until this point, Paul has uh, been briefly discussing his efforts to never put a stumbling block in front of people in regard to them hearing the gospel message. He wants them, if they're going to stumble, he does not want them to stumble based on what he's doing. If they're going to stumble, they need to stumble on the gospel message themselves, not on himself. We have an extraordinarily interesting passage here. Paul is going to flesh this out a little bit for us, what this looks like. But what's interesting is Paul does not uh, ram himself into a category. He's not. He's not a Jewish Christian bound by Jewish law, and he's not a Gentile Christian who supposedly has no law. He's he's just simply a free Christian to live and function. Now watch what he says. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Brethren, let me ask you the question, what law are the Jews under? I know you all know the answer to this. What law are the Jews under? The Mosaic law. Thank you. So to the Jews, he became as a Jew. To those under the law, he became under the law. Now watch what he says. Though not being myself under the law. Brethren, this cannot be more clear. Paul is saying, I became like them, put myself under that, but I am not under that. That I might win those under the law. Now look at verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Okay, so here's the point. Paul's fundamental point is this. He is not under the Mosaic law. Now, we see him in Acts doing things, taking vows, you know, things like that that he's doing so as to not bring offense to the Jews. But he says, look, I'm not under, I became as them, I, I put myself under that law, but I'm not under it. But, he's, but here's the point, though he's not under the Mosaic law, it doesn't make him without law. It doesn't make him lawless. He says, I am under the law of Christ. And he actually equates the law of God with the law of Christ. So we can properly say this, brethren, the Mosaic law 
in any or all of its parts is not ultimately the law of God, but the law of Christ is. And it's similar to what came a little earlier in chapter 7, verse 19, where Paul says this, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. It's like, Paul, give me a break. You're you're saying circumcision doesn't count for anything but keeping the commandments of God. Circumcision was a commandment of God. How does that even make sense? How can you say in the same breath, keeping God's commandment doesn't matter, and in the same breath, keeping God's commandments is the only thing that matters? Quite obviously, Paul is seeing that God's commandments, or as we see it in chapter 9, God's law, the law of God, is something other than the Mosaic law. So then, back in chapter 9, Paul says he is under the law of Christ. Now, brethren, let me just ask you this question. If someone were to ask you, as a Christian, what law are you under? How many of you would have said the law of Christ? How many, would you, how many of you would have said something different? Perhaps, I'm under the Ten Commandments. I, I presume it's probably a lot more than that. <laughs> Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. This is, the, this is the idea that I held most of my Christian life. And yet Paul says, I am under the law of Christ. This is important for us to get. And so look, I, the next question becomes this, right? Paul says, I'm not under that law, the law of the Jews. I'm not under it, but that doesn't make me lawless. I'm under the law of God, the law of Christ. But still the question is, well, what is that? That's great, Paul. You're under the law of Christ. Can you please tell us what that is? So let's deal with that. I want you to turn back again to John chapter 13. John 13. Verse 34, we already read it, but let's read it again. Jesus is with his disciples during the Passover, just before his crucifixion, and he's about to state to them their duty. And he's going to state it to them, brethren, in a singular command. Here's what he says, A new commandment I give to you. Now listen, brethren, I need you to hearken back to everything we just talked about last week. All the law and the prophets pointing forward to Jesus, finding their ultimate fulfillment in Him. Jesus being the greater lawgiver, Jesus being the greater law. Brethren, it's all about to come to a head right here where Jesus is about to function as a lawgiver for His people. And He's about to do so by displaying Himself as the example. So he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Brother, I'm not going to ask you because I don't doubt that many of you look at this verse the same way I do, that this is not as impactful as it ought to be for us. It was no doubt 
as we're going to see as the rest of the New Testament unfolds, we're going to look at a number of places very impactful for Jesus' disciples. But the sad reality is, brethren, people think of that statement right there as very inferior to a lot of other things. They think Jesus saying that is inferior to the Ten Commandments, inferior to any other thing found in the Bible. But I will tell you this, there is nothing higher than to love as Christ loved. You take the Seventh Commandment. Anybody know the Seventh Commandment? Good thing you're not under that law, right? What's the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery, okay? You take that commandment and you put that up against husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see the example again in Christ, right? Now you tell me which standard is higher. Don't commit adultery or love your wife as Christ loved the church. Quite obviously, brethren, it's the latter. It's a higher call to holiness and righteousness. The law of Christ is a law of love. But the problem is this. People think that love is cheap. They think love is cheap. Especially in our own camp. Brethren, in our own camp of Reformed theology, you cannot even talk about the love of God unless people accuse you of degrading God's holiness and His righteousness and and giving Christians all allowance to sin. It's ridiculous. Love is cheap to them. But Jesus Christ does not think love is cheap. He seems to think that love is sufficient for his people. He seems to think that that law is actually quite high. High enough in his mind to cover everything else in Scripture. And you see it played out in his ministry couple of verses. The golden rule, as it's so called, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Brethren, the concept is certainly the same. To love others as you yourself would desire to be loved or treated is, he says, that is the law and the prophets. The law of love comes in and swallows up everything found in the law and the prophets. He does the same thing in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. A Pharisee comes to ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Brethren, he does not list the Ten Commandments. He pulls from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. And he tells them, love God and love your neighbor. Brethren, again, the concept boils down to love. And he tells them, on these two commandments depend or hang all of the law in the prophets. You see, the law of love simply engulfs everything found in the law and the prophets. It engulfs everything found in the law, in the Mosaic law. Brethren, the law of love is not subservient to the Mosaic law. It doesn't come in under it and just fit into its nice little categories, nor is it explained by it. The law of love is not explained by everything you find back there. That law comes under Christ's law. It is only explained by the law of love. That law only finds its fullest meaning in the law of love or the law of Christ. It pointed forward to a greater law. 
And that one doesn't annul the previous one. It doesn't make void the previous one. It absorbs everything that was there into itself. And this is why, brethren, Paul can say things like love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's look at some of these verses. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, 8 through 10. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, he's about to name a couple of commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Any other commandment, brethren. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Go over to Galatians chapter 5. Verses 13 and 14. We read this verse in part a minute ago. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Brethren, you need to see it. To love is to fulfill the law. That's it. Listen, there's a lot of commentators that want to come to these verses, and they want to say something like, oh, love is just the motivation that helps you then to go back and keep the law. No, that is not what Paul says. He doesn't say it helps you keep the law. He says it is the fulfillment of the law. That is it. You love and you've kept it. And this brings us back to the point we left off with last week, or at least the question that we left off with last week. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that every commandment, from the greatest to the least, he says, you will keep. And we ask the question, well, how do we keep it? Brethren, this is how you keep it. Paul says, that's it. To love is the fulfillment of the law. That's how you keep it. The way you keep it is through love. It is not as though it becomes void and irrelevant for you, but rather it finds its fulfillment in love. The Old Covenant law in its entirety comes across to us only as it relates to Christ and His teaching. Brethren, the degree to which the Old Covenant law has valid continuity with those who are now in the New Covenant is only established with its reference, that law's reference, to the one to which it pointed, Christ, and His law of love. And this law of love is the framework for the entire New Testament. 
This is how the New Testament writers are thinking. They're thinking in terms of law and lo of love. They're thinking in terms of law of Christ. And I wanted to deal with a lot of verses, but I'm just going to have to give you a couple of examples so that you can see how the New Testament writers are fleshing out this duty of God's people. John brings this out. First John, you, I mean, you, it would be better maybe to write these down because I'm going to go through them quickly. You could try to flip to them if you want. But John brings this out in 1 John chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. And he says this, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, brethren, we might wonder there, what commandments is John referencing? I've actually, I saw it this, this week. I was reading an article online, and they were kind of combating, really, what I'm preaching to you today. And, and the, the verse they used was this verse. And they said, how can you say that? How can you say the Old Testament law has passed away? John says that we keep God's commandments. Brethren, John says literally in the next verse what commandments he is referencing. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. This is their lens. James brings it out. James chapter 1 and chapter 2. In James 1, 25, he talks about the one who peers or looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he calls it, and then goes out and does it. And he says, the one who does it will be blessed for having done it. Again, we could ask the same thing. John, James, what law are you talking about? But of course, we don't have to fret. James tells us just a bit later in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. You see it, brethren? We've called it the law of love, the law of Christ. James calls it the perfect law, the royal law, the law of liberty. Isn't that fitting? The law of liberty, brethren. Over and over and over again, the New Testament writers are looking through this lens. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 16.14, let all that you do be done in love. Galatians 5.6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith, working through love. Colossians 3.12-14, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has in complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul tells the church 
and tells Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Brother, we could go on and on and on, verse after verse after verse, but I hope that you are seeing it quite clearly. The law of love, or the law of Christ, is the lens through which the New Testament authors are looking to tell you what constitutes godly living. Brethren, this, as you enter into the new covenant, this is the covenant law that you are under. Christ brings it in for his people, and he is the example for his people. So one last thing then I just want to deal with. Question is this, how do we know then what is good? Because what the New Testament is doing is, you've come out of that old covenant, you're no longer under that old covenant or the Mosaic law, now you've come into this new covenant. Jesus Christ says, a new commandment I give to you. The New Testament is quite clearly referencing back to that as the commandment, the royal law, the law of liberty, the perfect law. All these things are looking back. They're saying, Christ, he said to love. This is what we do. This is our duty. And then the New Testament authors are in broad strokes laying out what that means for God's people. What do you do to love? But still, the point is this, we don't have a complete list, if you will, of every single duty or commandment of every single thing that we ought to do. And of course, the New Testament does give us a lot of commands, right? Forgive one another, put to death the deeds of the body, redeem the time, don't let corrupting talk come from your mouth, do all things without grumbling or complaining, and so on. A lot of these things come out in the New Testament, they all certainly find their their place under this law of love. But nevertheless, the point is this, we do not have a commandment for everything. So what do we do when we do not have a commandment for some specific question of duty? Because this is an important question. Oftentimes people will ask, if this is what you're saying the Bible teaches, well, how are you going to make sure you keep people bound in to not commit ungodliness? Well, the Bible gives us a couple of verses, I think, that are helpful. There were four that I really wanted to go at, but again, I, I just, I'm so cut for time on especially these last two messages that I have had to leave out so much. But the Bible is filled with this. So Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Here's what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now watch, that by testing you may discern. <laughs> that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Look with me at Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 10. Look at the contrast he's going to give us here. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For at one time, you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern. What is pleasing to the Lord? So you see this. The idea is this, brethren. As you are conformed to Christ's image, as you're transformed in the renewal of your mind, you are going to discern what the will of God is. You are going to know what is good and acceptable in His sight. As you now walk in the light, as children of the light, you're going to discern. What's pleasing to the Lord? Brethren, as you are filled with and walk in love, I can promise you this. The Spirit of God will lead you into righteousness. You see it in Galatians chapter 5. Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Listen, brethren. When he talks about the fruits of the Spirit, these are not things where you go out and accomplish something, and thereby these fruits come about in your life. These are fruits that the Spirit puts in the life of a Christian. He does it. They are fruits of the Spirit. If you are walking in love, if you are led by the Spirit, following after Christ, those things will be produced in you, brethren. You will know what is good and right and holy before the Lord. You will not walk in ungodliness. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. All of this, brethren, is work of the Spirit done in God's people. They don't walk in ungodliness, brethren. They don't do it. And they don't not do it because they're looking over here saying, I need to keep myself in the guardrails. They don't do it because their heart hates it. They've been given a new heart, and they don't want to walk that way. They want to walk in righteousness. They want to honor God. It comes from internal, brethren. It's from inside the heart. They love God, and they hate evil. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into His image And it all comes by the Spirit, he says in that verse. Brethren, as you look to Christ, if you love as He loved, if He is your example, if you walk as He walked, you love as He loved, you will be holy, brethren. You will be. Let's pray.